Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It's Wednesday, it's the middle of the week, and I'm excited to find out what international day of celebration it is. No, more down, I would argue, because now you're just ahead. People like to see necks. Necks are nice. I want to see your neck. I want to see how old you are. <laughs> That's all hair on it. <clears throat> Can't tell. All right, now my screensaver came. Okay. Better? Better? I'm in front of this. You're good. Right? You're good. You don't have to move. Okay. <laughs> Today on Before Coffee, UBS preparing to cut more than half of the inherited Credit Suisse workforce. Supreme Court rejects ridiculous selection law. Ukraine Defense Minister minister expects NATO guarantee for after the war. Canada is going to try to take advantage of the United States visa brain drain. Paris police shooting. Macron says killing of teenager inexcusable. And in Weird Wednesday news, killer whales are... I've clearly had enough of humans. Today on June 28, 2023 edition of the Four Coffee. Okay, let's get into our first news story here about the UBS uh, merger that happened, I think probably back in February, is how long we've been talking about this merger, where Credit Suisse was going to go bankrupt, so UBS, the their competition basically, took all everybody and put them under their wings. This is a article from Philip Inman on The Guardian. The Swiss investment bank UBS is reportedly preparing to cut more than half of the 45,000 staff inherited from the takeover of stricken rival Credit Suisse in a move that is expected to begin as early as next month. Insiders have indicated that between 30,000 and 35,000 staff are likely to leave the combined organization this year in three rounds of cuts beginning in July, according to Bloomberg News. Credit Suisse employees will bear the brunt of the cuts with about 25,000 posts held by the staff before the takeover expected to be removed. Prospect of the huge job losses is further blow to the City of London after rivals Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs announced a reduction in staff numbers earlier this year. Credit Suisse offices in the capital are expected to be among the worst hit as UBS seeks to protect operations in Switzerland. Senior executives, traders, and thousands of support staff in New York and some parts of Asia, Asia are also expected to be told the positions are redundant, according to the report. UBS has previously stressed that the bank is keen to reduce cost overall and has not set a target for reduction in the workforce. It reluctantly agreed to buy Credit Suisse in a deal thrashed out with the Swiss government and local regulators in March, after the rival bank came close to bankruptcy. The costs of the merger were expected to be $17 billion or £13.4 billion, Although UBS is estimated to have inherited a portfolio of assets from Credit Suisse worth $35 billion, and in the immediate aftermath of the takeover, the combined workforce rose to $120,000. Shares of UBS rose to 1.4% at the open on Wednesday, trading at 17.1 Swiss francs, or $19.907, 
as of 9.05 a.m. in Zurich. A spokesperson for UBS declined to comment on the report of job cuts. At an event in Zurich on Tuesday, the UBS chief executive, Sergioi Ermoti, said the integration was going very well. It sounds like to me, right, that, uh, you know, oh boy, we, we got 35 billion extra money, even if you take out the 17 billion they had to pay, right? That's, you know, still over, over 20, 20 billion extra income. And they're like, oh darn, that's just not gonna cover those 45,000 extra workers we had to take over. Time to leave, get out of here, go find a new job. Losers, we're gonna take the extra 20 billion for ourselves. Everyone else under our bank is gonna get a raise. Unlikely, most likely the CEO is gonna take all the money and the board of directors, right. and nobody working under them is gonna get a raise. But we'll see. You know, they, they get to keep the job, that's what happens. Yeah. I always like these the exciting merger news of our company and all the people reading are like, we don't care. Yeah. Just don't, you know. We we care because we know we're gonna you're gonna change a bunch of crap on us, but just to what the old company's crap is. You know, two companies merge and they gotta combine that crap that they force on everybody else. That's the only thing that really happens to the workers. I'm sorry, your story isn't. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. All right. Because I was worried about my stupid screensaver it keeps coming up. I got to change. Okay, so my story here. And then U.S. Supreme Court news in a 63 decision. We still have a democracy for now. The Supreme Court on Tuesday rejected the legal theory. What if this is from, I'm sorry, the uh, New York Times, Adam Liptak. The Supreme Court on Tuesday rejected a legal theory that would have radically reshaped how federal elections are conducted by giving a state legislature largely unchecked power to set rules for federal elections and to draw congressional maps warped by partisan gerrymandering. The vote was six to three with Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority opinion. The Constitution, he said, does not exempt the state legislature from the ordinary constraints imposed by state law. Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch dissented. Mmm, the three guys on the take. What a shock. The decision, followed by other important rulings, determined which the court's three liberal members were in the majority, including ones with the Voting Rights Act, immigration, and tribal rights. With some of the biggest cases are still to come, probably arriving at the end of the week, the court has so far repeatedly repudiated aggressive arguments from conservative litigants case concerning the independent state legislator theory. It's based on a reading of the Constitution's election clause that said the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed each state and legislature thereof. Notice there's a word elections in there. It's not a word of, oh, we get to decide and throw the elections out. That's what they were trying to do. We don't like the results, so the state legislature is going to move and send their own delegate of uh, electors. This is only for the presidential election, by the way. The proponents of the strongest form of the theory say this means that no other organs of the state government, not courts, not governors, not election administrators, not attendant, not independent commission can alter a legislator's actions in federal courts. Chief Justice rejected that position. The election clause does not institute state legislatures from the ordinary exercise 
does not insulate state legislators from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. The ruling soundly dismissed this theory, one that unusually divisive array of law, one that an unusually divisive array, diverse array of lawyers, judges, and scholars across the ideological spectrum viewed as a extreme and dangerous. Adopting the theory they warned could have profound consequences for nearly every aspect of federal elections, including by erasing safeguards against bipartisan gerrymandering and curtailing the ability to challenge voting restrictions in state courts. But some election law specialists cautioned that Tuesday's decision elevated the power of federal courts in the process, allowing them to second guess at least some rulings of state courts based on state law. This gives the U.S. Supreme Court the ultimate say over the meaning of state law in the midst of election dispute, said Richard Hansen, a law professor at UCLA. This is this is bad, but not awful result. Others said the decision was nearly complete victory and a resounding reaffirmation of the status quo. I see no evidence of interest by the Supreme Court to make mischief here, said Vakram David Amar, the Dean of the University of Illinois College of Law. As Chief Justice Roberts put it, state courts do not have free reign and are subject to oversight by federal courts in cases involving federal elections, but he said quite aloud, quite little about the nature and extent of that oversight. The questions presented in the area are complex and content specific. We only hold that state courts may not transgress the ordinary bounds of judicial review such that they arrogate themselves to the power vested in the state legislators to vested federal to regulate federal elections. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Alina Kagan, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, Kentaji, Kentaji Brown Jackson joined the Chief Justice majority opinion. The case will have no practical impact in the dispute that gave rise to it involving North Carolina's congressional map. A recent ruling by the state Supreme Court authorized Republican controlled legislators to draw maps as it sees fit, ensuring that the resulting districts will be shaped by politics. The case Moore versus Harper, number 21-1271, concerned a voting map drawn by the North Carolina legislature after a 2020 census that was initially rejected by a partisan gerrymander by the state Supreme Court. Experts said that the map was likely to yield a congressional delegation that made up at least 10 Republicans and four fewer Democrats, even though North Carolina is roughly evenly divided. The state court initially rejected the argument that it was not entitled to review the actions of the state legislature, saying that adopting the independent state legislature's theory would be repugnant to the sovereignty of the states, the authority of the state constitution, and independence of the state court, and reduce absurd and dangerous consequences. So there's lots of legal stuff. There's about 14 more paragraphs of that, but we'll cut it short. In the meantime, at least now, for now, Voters get to decide, in their state at least, who wins the election. Until we get some other crackpot who points some more Supreme Court justices who don't care about democracy. Your story. Man, why do they keep on doing that? Not caring about democracy. Uh, like because they want to be completely in power and control everything. Republicans are like 30% of the country and they run half of the country. I'm over half the country. 
the because of the sparse populations and stuff, and they get yeah. to gerrymander things because they run state legislatures. And so, yeah, they're overrepresented in our government, and all they do is try to hold on to power through these ridiculous laws, or these rid ridiculous challenges to laws. Yeah. Right, you're okay. In news about Ukraine and their hope that. They will win the war and be able to continue life as it was before. This is from Daniel Bofi, the chief reporter at The Guardian. Ukraine's defense minister has raised the stakes before the next NATO summit, saying he expects a guarantee that his country will be invited to join the military alliance at the conclusion of war with Russia, describing membership as non-negotiable. Before the 33rd meeting of the alliance's leaders taking place in the fortnight in Vilnius, Oleski Rezonov said Kiev recognized the ascension to NATO was not possible while the conflict continued, but insisted hard pledges for the future would need to be made. The Ukrainian government is lobbying hard behind the scenes for a bespoke route to joining NATO. Jettensing the normal membership action plan, MAP or MAP, that leaves accession at risk of last minute veto by any member state. In 2008, before a NATO summit in Bucharest, Germany's then-Chancellor Angela Merkel vetoed Ukraine being put on a membership action plan despite lobbying from the U.S. government for an open-door policy for former Soviet republics. Merkel claimed that the continued debate within Ukraine over NATO membership and Russia's legitimate security concerns meant it was not the right time for the country to begin the process of joining the alliance. When was this again? 2008. And then they invaded Crimea. Hello? Idiots. Freaking Germans. Uh, Rezanov told The Guardian that no such error should be repeated when the 31 NATO members gather on 11th of July in Lithuania's capital and that hard assurances should be granted. He said, In, Vilin in Vilnius, the head of the state and government of NATO members, countries will be have an opportunity to correct the mistake of Bucharest 2008 and demonstrate responsible leadership meeting our expectations. This will show Russia that its influence must end at its borders, and further aggression will only accelerate the collapse of the terrorist state. We are realists, and do not demand the impossible. This is why our expectations from the Vilnius NATO summit are very realistic, to receive a guarantee of an invitation to join NATO after Ukraine's victory in the war. We are ready to sign the session protocol immediately to start the ratification and file session procedure. Concerns have been raised in the U.S. and Germany that granting early NATO membership to Ukraine could provoke Russia and could change the alliance's decisions-making structure. We already provoked Russia by giving tanks to Ukraine. So, At a recent alliance meeting, France's foreign minister, Catherine Colonna, did not sound effusive about ditching the usual map process, saying it might perhaps be unnecessary. Although her British counterpart, James Cleverly, gave London's firm backing. Finland which did not need to go through the map process, became NATO's newest member when it joined on the 4th of April. Bosnia and Herzegovina and Sweden are now candidate countries. Turkey and Hungary have so far blocked Sweden's membership, an example of the lack of assurance that any prospective member can face as they go through the process of ascension. Reznikov said it was in NATO's interest to fortify its eastern flank, giving Russia given that Russia would remain a threat for the foreseeable future, including to Hungary, whose Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has been criticized by Kiev for pandering to Moscow. He said, 
The three key pre prerequisites for being a member of the NATO alliance are interoperability with NATO forces, a transparent procurement system, and civilian control of the military. By now, Ukraine has successfully implemented all three of these prerequisites. Yeah, no kidding. Half the civilian populace is in the military. In a view of Russia's aggressive stance, which is not going to change anytime soon, it is the interest of NATO to enhance and fortify its eastern flank. Today, Ukraine is already serving as a protective shield for NATO's eastern European members. If this shield cracks, the next victim of Russian aggression could be the Baltic states, Poland, Hungary, or Slovakia. I have no doubt, therefore, that it's in NATO's best interest that Ukraine's combat exper experience with the use of NATO's standard weapons systems against the Russian army is made fully available to NATO countries. To achieve this, Ukraine must become a full-fledged member of NATO. Reznikov said there was no credibility in the previous claims made by Merkel and others, others, and that membership should not be granted due to an internal debate in Ukraine over its future relationship with the Western alliance. Like, oh, they might. Russia might be threatened by Ukraine's borders. Okay. Are they, though? Are you going to do, like, an investigation to discover if they are? No, we're just going to deny them uh, ascension into NATO because there might be something happening. We don't know, but there might be, you know? Meteors might fall from the sky tomorrow, but let's make our decisions based on the future, future, future. He said Ukrainians were keenly aware of the weak position Ukraine had been left in by Budapest the, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, under which the country gave up its nuclear arsenal in return for commitments from the US, Russia, and Britain to respect the independence and sovereignty of the existing borders of Ukraine. And nobody has followed up on that commitment. Not a single person, the US, Russia, or Britain. Britain had to be bullied to even help Ukraine. They should have instantly went to help Ukraine because they had a treaty that said, if anybody attacks you, you we will help you. They had a treaty with the UK and they were like, oh no, this is different because it's Russia and they might throw nukes at us. I'm like, okay, well, it's a great thing treaties mean nothing these days. Reznikov said, importantly, today the most support for Ukraine opinion for our NATO membership is a historical unprecedented level, especially since they're probably getting bombed right now so they're like yeah anything to stop the bombing let's go yeah, let's be honest they're kind of in the middle of it right now anything's better a record high 83 percent not least because since 2014 we have seen firsthand the devastating impact of the failure of the budapest memorandum with crimea this is why nato membership is perceived by the overwhelming majority of ukrainians as the only possible efficient form of security guarantees for our peaceful future this is exactly why Ukraine's membership in the NATO alliance, just about territorial integrity, are non-negotiable. Right, that's the end of my article about... Just let them in NATO already. What is gonna hurt? Russia already angry at you. Yeah. Russia's already angry. Well, they just, they just are, uh, foot draggers. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, in uh, Canadian news, Canada plans blame drain of H-1B visa holders with no job, no worries, work permits. They're vetted almost, a, this is from theregister.com by Simon Sharwood. They're vetted, they're vetted almost 
acculturated and will be booted from the U.S. if they lose their gig. That's the sub-headline. Canada has launched a bid to attract techies working in the U.S. on a notorious H-1B visa by offering them a chance to move north. The offer, announced on Wednesday as part of the nation's first ever tech talent strategy, means H-1B visa holders can move to Canada without having a job waiting for them. The H-1B visa is contentious in the U.S. It is purpose to attract skilled people from whose talents are in short supply stateside, thus adding flexibility to the economy. But the visa is believed to be widely abused by employees who use it to find employ- employers who use it to find employees willing to work for less than their American peers. But the visa is very popular in India, one of the main sources of H-1B applicants. Indeed, it is so popular that the Biden administration last week announced that the moderate reforms to the program during the state visit by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Narendra Modi. Is it Modi or Modi? You tell me. Modi? All right. The H-1B also made news early in 2023 amid mass layoffs in the tech sector because the visa holders who don't have jobs have just 90 days to leave the land of the free. Canada has clearly spotted a spotted an op- Canada has clearly spotted an opportunity to nab some talent that needs a needs a bolt hole and can get that talent safe in the knowledge that its southern neighbor has vetted. H-1B holders, and they already have some experience in working in North America. Canada has created 10,000 places for H-1B holders, which must be filled within a year as of July 6th. The work permits issued under the program in the last three years. The work permits issued under the program under the last three years. Okay, the talent acquisition plans also includes them specific categories for the express entry program targeted skilled workers, promotions to attract digital nomads, visas that make it easier for workers to move to Canada to work for work at startups other than their own companies, the development and the development of innovation stream offering five-year work permits for those with skills in certain occupations who will work for businesses contributing to Canada's industrial innovation goals. The Great White North is also keen on growing more local talent. Skilled people, especially teachers, are in short supply everywhere. Canada's revamped talent acquisition program is therefore not unusual, but it is doubtless designed with the hope of giving it an edge. One audience of the strategy doesn't explicitly address is Russians. Hundreds of thousands of skilled teachers are thought to have fled Russia either to avoid conscription or just to seek greener pastures in light of economic sanctions. And that's your short and sweet story from Canada. Economic sanctions incoming. Okay. News from Paris. From, this is from Reuters in Paris. The French President Emmanuel Macron has described the shooting of a... Uh, what's that? Shoot the shooting dead. Shooting dead. That's a weird phrase. The French President Emmanuel Macron has described the shooting of a 17-year-old boy by police during a traffic stop near Paris as inexcusable in a rare criticism of law enforcement hours after incident triggered riots. 
A police officer is being investigated for voluntary homicide for shooting the youth, who a neighborhood neighbor said was from a family of Algerian origin. Prosecutors say he failed to comply with an order to stop his car early on Monday. The Interior Minister Ministry called for a calm after at least 31 people were arrested in riots overnight, mainly in Paris, suburb of Nanterre, where the victim lived, with youths burning cars and shooting fireworks at police who sprayed people with tear gas. We have an adolescent that was killed. It is unexplainable and inexcusable, Macron told reporters in Marseille. Nothing justifies the death of a young man. Rights groups allege systematic racism inside law enforcement agencies in France, a charge Macron has previously denied. A video shared on social media shows two police officers beside a car, Mercedes AMG, one of whom shoots at the driver as the driver pulls away. Sporadic clashes broke out between youths and police on Tuesday evening as anger of the death of a teenager grew in the local community. Some groups set alight barricades and garbage bins, smashed up a bus stop, and threw firecrackers toward the police, who responded with tear gas and dispersion grenades. Nine people were arrested. After a record 13 deaths from police shootings in France during the traffic stops last year, this was the second fatal incident in such circumstances in 2023. Three people were killed by police gunfire after refusing to apply with traffic stop in 2021 and two in 2020. A Reuters tally of fatal shootings in 2021 and 2022 showed the majority of victims were black or Arabic in origin. As a mother from Nantere, I have feelings of insecurity for our children, said Mornia Labisi, a local resident and anti-racism campaigner who said she had spoken to the victim's family, which she said was of Algerian origin. One passenger was taken into police custody, but later released. Police were unable to contact another passenger, the prospector's office said. The driver was known to, to judicial services for having refused to comply with the traffic stop on a previous occasion, he said. Ah, so that deserves death, huh? The Paris police chief, Laurent Nunez, told BFM TV that the act raises questions for me and that the justice system would decide whether or not it was appropriate. Uh, okay. The French Interior Minister, Gerald Darmanin, tweeted that the General Inspectorate of the National Police was investigating to shed light on the circumstances of the drama. Like, unless this seven-year-old boy was, like, holding someone hostage in his car and was trying to get away, I don't see why, like, shooting them point blank was necessary. You could have shot the car if you wanted the car to stop. You can shoot at the wheels. Like, shooting the driver is a very extreme reaction to that. So, anyways, uh, I hope Paris gets that fixed up and stops being racist, and on to your next story. Okay, on a weird Wednesday, because it's Wednesday, the last I checked, I... We're going to killer whale news. Orcas disrupt boat race near Spain and latest display of dangerous puzzling behavior. According to Associated Press, Jimmy Golan, a pair of killer whales bumped in one of the boats in an endured sailing race as it approached the Strait of Gibraltar. The latest encounter in what researchers say is a growing trend of sometimes aggressive interactions with the Iberian orcas. 15 minute run with at least three of the giant mammals forced the crew competing forced the crew competing in the ocean race on Thursday to drop its sails and raise a clatter in the attempt to scare the approaching orcas off. No one was injured, but Team Jajo skipper Jelmer Van Beek said 
in the video posted on Ocean Race website that it was a scary moment. 20 minutes ago, we got hit by some orcas, said the video. Three orcas came straight at us and started hitting the rudders. Aggressively impressive to see the orcas. Beautiful animals, but it's also a dangerous moment for us as a team. Team Jallo was approaching the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea on a leg from the Netherlands to Italy when at least three orcas approached the V065 class sloop. Videos taken by the crew showed one of the killer whales appeared to be nuzzling the rudder. Another video showed them running its nose into the hull. Scientists have noted increasing reports of orcas, which average from 16 to 21 feet, and weigh more than 8,000 pounds, 3,600 kilograms, bumping or damaging boats off western coast of the Iberian Pennsylvania Peninsula in the last four years. The behavior device defies each easy explanation. A team of marine life researchers who study killer whales off Spain and Portugal has identified 15 individual orcas involving in, in these encounters, 13 of them young, supporting the hypothesis that they're playing. The fact that two of the adults could be support the the fact that two are adults could support the competing and more sensational theory that they are responding to some traumatic event with a boat. The sailors were warned of the hazard. We knew there was a possibility of an orc attack in this leg, Team Jalo on board reporter Brett Schull said. So we had already spoken about what to do if the situation would occur. Schull said there was a call for all hands on deck and the sails were dropped too slow to slow the boat from a racing speed of 12 knots. The crew made noises to scare the orcas off, but not before it had fallen from the second to fourth leg from the Hugh, from the from the Hague to Genoa, where it's expected to arrive this weekend. This seemed more aggressive, playful when we were sailing at speed. Once we slowed down, they started to be less aggressive in our attack. Everyone is okay on board and the animals are also okay. The ocean race involved two classes of sailboats at sea for weeks at a time, with the Imoka 60 boats competing in a six-month, 32,000 nautical mile circumnavigation of the globe. Boats have already contended with giant seaweed flotilla, catastrophic equipment failure, and a collision that knocked the leader out of the decisive seventh leg. Although the race course navigates around ex exclusion zones to protect known marine habitats, there have been previous encounters with whales, the orca, the orca race, and other high-speed regattas. However, they usually involve the boats crashing into the animals, not the other way around. One of the boats in the around-the-world portion of this year's ocean race triggered its hazard alarm after hitting what they suspected was a whale off the coast of Newfoundland in May. The two crew members were injured in the collision. At the beginning of 2013, America's Cup on San Francisco Bay, a whale was reported in the bay and organizers were prepared to delay the race if it wandered onto the course. In 2022, the start of the Sail GPs $1 million winner-take-all Season 2 championship race in the same area of San Francisco Bay was delayed when a whale was spotted on the course. In 2005, the first South African yacht to challenge for the America's Cup hit a whale that's 12-foot keel during a training during training near Cape Town, stopping stopping the 75-foot sloop dead in the water, injuring two crew members and snapping off 
both steering wheels. What about the poor whale? Didn't mention what happened to the whale in that one. Well, that's your story. Watch out for them whales. It made it sound like the whales are going crazy and taking revenge, but it seems to be just playful youngins just having a little fun in Iberia. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of whales, including dolphins, love having weird fun. I mean, dolphins spike around pufferfish to get high. They play volleyball. And with we're pufferfish. the ones that call them. We're the ones that decided to call them killer whales when, in fact, most animals are killers. Let's yeah. Otherwise, right. they starve to death. Right. Especially in the sea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're sorry. Okay, in culture news, Pompeii Fresco finally possibly depicts a 2,000-year-old form of pizza. That's right. This whole time, I've been saying pizza was not invented until the tomato got to Europe. Because tomatoes are American. Fun fact, they do not belong in Europe. They, right. they did exist in Europe, but the tomatoes in Europe were poisonous. And the tomatoes yeah, they in thought- America were not. In America, they thought tomatoes were poisonous, too, because the plants were... And they still are. Yeah. Also, they were eating eating tomatoes on uh, lead plates. And because tomatoes are acidic, uh, they they absorb all the lead. And then you're like, mmm, lead with my pasta? (laughs) Thanks a lot. Anyways, so this is from Angela Giofrida in Rome. A striking still-life fresco resembling a pizza has been found among the ruins of ancient Pompeii, although the dish seems to lack two essential ingredients. Tomato and mozzarella! And includes an item that looks especially like a pineapple? (gasps) What? Are pineapples the original topping of pizzas? Don't tell anybody. The fresco, which dates back to 2,000 years, emerged during excavations in the Regio 9 area of Pompeii's archaeological park which is close to Naples, the birthplace of pizza. Or is it? The painting was on a wall in what is believed to have been halfway of a home that had a bakery in its annex, so they were making pizzas, huh? The fresco appears to depict a round focaccia bread on a silver tray serving as support for various fruits, including a pomegranate and, po- po- eh, a pomegranate and possibly a date. However, the pineapple on the plate seems likely to be something else entirely. As the first European encounter to the fruit was Christopher Columbus in Guadalupe in 1493. Maybe they're pine cones? I don't know. They do look a lot like very small pineapples. Experts say the bread... They say the bread is seasoned with spices or moritum, a herb cheese spread in by ancient Romans. Next to the bread is a goblet of wine, along with dried fruit, dates, pomegranate, and a garland of yellow... Arbutus. The still life is thought to have been inspired by the Greek hospitality ritual of Xenia, and so the tray represents gifts that were offered to guests as part of the tradition dating back to the Hellenistic period. Such images were widespread in the homes of ancient Pompeii and nearby Heruculaneum, which were both wiped out by the Mount Vesuvius erupted in AD 79. However, it is unusual to find such a fresco containing an image of a focaccia. Gabriel Zucktriegel, the director of Pompeii Archaeological Park, said the fresco appeared to reflect the contrast between a frugal and simple meal and the luxury of silver trays and refinement of artistic and literary representations. 
How can we fail to think in this regard of pizza, which was also born as a poor dish of southern Italy, which has now conquered the world and is also served in starred restaurants, he said. Naples is home of the margarita, the traditional pizza comprising of a simple mix of tomato, mozzarella, fresh basil, and extra virgin olive oil, and the notion of topping the dish off with fruit enrages many Italians. I think that's a meme. I don't think people are actually enraged. What I've seen from other actual Italians is they don't fucking care what you're eating. <laughs> Just don't snap yeah, your was... pasta. That's what they care about. Don't get your pasta and snap in half. That's the only thing they really care about. <laughs> but not so much for Gina Sorbio, the owner of one of the oldest pizzerias in Naples, who is convinced that the image in the Pompeii fresco is in fact a pizza. In ancient Pompeii, we already knew there were forms of flatbread made with grains, water, salt, and maybe beer as a leavening agent, he said. Then they might have topped it with vegetables or fish on the day. It was an ancient form of pizza. I can't believe ancient pizza still had fish on it. I just can't. I, I love fish, but on pizza, no. Anchovies. Just stop. Anchovies. anchovies. Yeah, maybe anchovies, but like, if you're going to put like a cod on some pizza or some tuna, I'm like, stop doing that, please. And I don't agree. <laughs> I'll put Slapping. pineapple all over my pizza, but never tuna, okay? <laughs> that, that's he added the fruit might have been considered. Oh wait, sorry. Yeah, he added there might the fruit might have been considered more of a main dish during the ancient Roman period. When it comes to fruit or pizza, fruit on pizza in modern times, he said you can use fruit, for example, figs or strawberry, if it's a sweet pizza. That's where the fresco settled the argument of pineapple on pizza. Sorbio responded with a result. No, tastes are tastes. He added, we make traditional pizza and would never use pineapple. I mean, to be fair, if they're making traditional pizza, as they said earlier, pineapples did not exist in freaking 49 AD, so there's no way that's a traditional pizza. Um, I know that some people, I don't know if it's Canada or it's Australia or somewhere in Southeast Asia, somewhere people put banana on their pizza, which to me is crazy because banana is very, very gooey when you cook it, so. Maybe it wasn't a pineapple, maybe it was a hand grenade. The holy hand grenade. Yeah, we did. <laughs> the eruption of Vesuvius killed an estimated 2,000 people. The ruins were discovered in the 16th century with the first excavations beginning in 1748. Excavations on Insula 10 in Regio 9, a district of the city that had hosted a cluster of homes, workshops, and the bakery, began in February. The skeletal remains of three victims, two women and a child, were found in May in a bakery where they were believed to have sought shelter. Frescoed walls featuring wow. the mystical scene of Apollo and Daphne in one, Poseidon and um, Memoni, Memoni in others, have been also discovered. The remains of the two other victims, thought to be two men in their mid-fifties, were found in another part of the site in mid-May. The men were believed to have been killed by an earthquake that accompanied the eruption of Vesuvius. One is thought to have raised his arm in an attempt to protect himself from the falling wall. Beads from a necklace and six coins, two dating back to the middle of the 2nd century BC, were found nearby. The Italian culture minister, Gennaro Sagiuliano, said, Pompeii never ceases to amaze. It is a treasure chest that always reveals new treasures, he added. There we go. Pizza's real. Pizza is an ancient Italian. I mean, putting stuff on bread, everyone does that, let's be honest, but... They're, they're yeah. saying, we own pizzas, okay? We own the idea. Copyrighted okay. Italy. Pizzas forever. Onto this day in history. 
major controversy about what people were struggling to eat. <laughs> imagine, imagine we would not eat anything they ate a thousand years ago. Even, right? We were like, no, I'm not eating that. Sorry, you need to warm that up in a microwave. <clears throat> this day in history, in 1519, Charles V, who was Charles I, as already King of Spain, was elected Holy Roman Empire Emperor. Sorry, his struggles to hold the empire together led to his abdication in. 1556. I mean, that was 35 years later, 37 years later, so it wasn't that bad. Anyway, and uh, I can't do math today. 1712, French philosopher, writer, and theorist Jean Jacques Rousseau, whose treatises on novels inspired the leaders of the French Revolution and the Romantic generation was born was born in Geneva sorry had to pick up pick up got pickups now 1778 according to legend a woman named Molly Hayes earned the nickname Molly Pitcher by carrying water during to her husband's regiment during the Battle of Monmouth and this day and this day in 1838 Queen Victoria was crowned the Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland in 1867, Italian playwright, novelist, and short story writer Luigi Paradello, recipient of the 1934 Nobel Prize, was born in 1880. Ned Kelly, Australia's most famous bush ranger, was arrested following a shootout with police. Later that year, he was hanged. 1889, Maria Mitchell, the first professional female astronomer in the United States, died at the age of 70. In 1894, the U.S. Congress declared the first Monday in September as Labor Day, a holiday to honor the American worker. In 1902, notorious bank robber John Dillinger was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. In 1919, the Treaty of Versailles was signed by the Paris the palace it was signed at the Palace of Versailles in France, signifying the end of World War One. So that sucker was not signed until 1919, and we thought it all ended in November of 1918. A series of violent confrontations in 18, 1969, a series of violent confrontations between police and gay rights activists began outside Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in New York City. The riots helped launch an international gay rights movement. In 1981, Canadian activist Terry Fox, after losing part of one of his legs of cancer, attempted to run across the country to raise money for cancer research, died at the age of 22. 1997, in a boxing match for heavyweight title, Mike Tyson was disqualified after he twice bit Evander Holyfield's ears. As a result of the infraction, he tempor temporarily lost his boxing license. But he got an endorsement from Pac-Man. Just kidding. In 2007, the bald eagle was removed from the U.S. list of endangered and threatened species. In 2009, on the same day as national referendum that it passed would have allowed him to run for re-election, Honduran President Manuel Zelaya, Zelaya was ousted by the country's military. So, so much for your second term, buddy. And uh, 
Featured event today, assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That's right, on this day in 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne and his consort Sophie, were assassinated by Gavrilo Princip in Sarajevo, Bosnia, for precipitating the outbreak of World War II. And birthdays today. Peter Paul Rubens, Flemish artist, was born in this day in 1577. Elon Musk was born in this day in 1971. Quarterback John Elway was born in 1960. Actress, American actress Kathy Bates, born in this day in 1948. And Mel Brooks turns 97 today. Mel Brooks, born in 1926. Wait, he's still alive? He's 97. Oh yeah. Damn. Bell is. He just made it. He just made a new movie, History of the World Part Two. Oh yeah. Have you oh, seen yeah. it? Oh yeah. They made. Wait, they made Part Two to that. I'm gonna watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's not as good, but it's funny. You know. His, of course, his best movies were both made in the same year, and that was Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. Yeah. In my opinion, but. That's me, but I think most people will tell you those are his best movies. And 1712, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Swiss, Swiss, we already we already covered him, was born. And what day is it today? What day is it? You asked. It is National Parchment Day. Did you know that? It's National Parchment Day? Well, now you know. <laughs> National Parchment. Also, International Body Piercing Day. <laughs> International piercing. Body Piercing so get your get your nipples pierced, pierced everybody. Get them <laughs> nipples gone. It's nipple day. Don't 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 go to nothing that doesn't hurt. <laughs> National Insurance Awareness Day. Make sure you have insurance today. Be aware of it, I guess. I don't know. National Paul Bunyan Day. So Paul Bunyan is getting his nipples pierced. National Logistics Day. Wanna know where you're gonna what your plans are later as you're bleeding from your piercings. So you want to be know where the nearest hospital is in case your blood isn't clotting. National Parchment Day, we already covered that. And it's also National Alaska Day. So Paul Bunyan, if he lives in Alaska getting his nipples pierced, is having a good old time. Okay. That's it. Uh, this has been Allison here from the Netherlands. Excited about, I don't know, going to a parchment store and then using the postal service to logistically send that to somebody uh, here um, you know on Before Coffee right on and this is Roger saying goodbye from the United States where I'm in Wisconsin where it is full of smoke on June 28th 2023 edition of Before Coffee Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.